I'm Pastor Evan. Thanks for being here this morning. Hey, quick raise of hands. We don't do this a lot, so don't be freaked out if you're new. But how many of you were invited to Liberty by somebody else? Raise your hands. That includes me. All right, how many of you were actually invited? All right, raise them up nice and high. All right. So a number of you were invited to Liberty by someone. The truth is people will not come to a church often unless they know somebody. And so we're just asking you for Easter to personally invite people to come to our church. And so we have a goal of 100 people, adults and children, to attend Easter Sunday, and we need your help. Because the people you know, I don't know. All right, so about the people that I did invite who are here, that's, I basically tapped out my social circles. But you haven't. And so we're just asking for your help. And the reason we're asking you to do that is because God loves the lost. God loves the lost. See, if God is the destination on Google Maps because of sin, we're all born driving the other way, the wrong way. Like, how crazy is that? You think about this, and you, you actually don't even know you're doing it when you're born that way that you're actually driving the opposite direction of God. But if gospel grabs a hold of your heart and wakes you up and shows you the nature of your sin and shame and guilt and shows you the solution to that in Jesus Christ, isn't that life-changing? Isn't that amazing? And here's the deal. Satan does not want your friends and families and neighbors and coworkers to hear the gospel. He doesn't. So unless you invite them, Satan is not going to let them know. <laughs> as crazy as that sounds. So we're asking you to do that because we want you to take those invite cards and just invite people to church. I know it's going to be a little weird and awkward to invite somebody, but just do it. You'll get over it. They'll get over it. And maybe somebody will show up. And so we're looking forward to that Sunday. And we, today we're going to talk more about how God loves the lost, which has been the main section in Luke that we're in. is this huge section of Luke that shows us that God loves the lost. And so Jesus tells this parable. We talked about parables a couple weeks ago. The parables are like political cartoons. They have, a, they have something on the, a face value, but there's a deeper meaning to the story, to the cartoon. So in this story, a master whose God is throwing a banquet or a party, inviting people, the party he's inviting them to, the banquet he's inviting them to is his kingdom, and he's inviting people into his kingdom through his servant, Jesus. But what I don't want us to miss, and this is why we read those last two verses, is that this parable ultimately is a warning. Don't allow other things to keep you from accepting God's invitation into his kingdom. Don't allow distractions, the things of this world, to keep you from accepting God's invitation through Jesus into his kingdom. And so I want to talk about the counterintuitive invitation into God's kingdom because Jesus does something very interesting here in the first few verses of Luke 14, verses 12 through 14. And then we're going to talk about invitation into God's kingdom requires commitment and then invitation into God's kingdom requires paying it forward. So let's look at the counterintuitive invitation to God's kingdom Jesus talks about starting in verse 12. So how do we get to verses 23 and 24? Well, look at verse 12. Jesus said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, 
do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Jesus is dining in this passage. Jesus is dining at house of one of the rulers of the Pharisees. And we talk about the Pharisees at different points. But Pharisees weren't an official group in Judaism. They were more of a pressure group in Judaism. So we've, and we talked about this, that the Pharisees are theologically very close to Jesus, but their hearts are very far from him. So they theologically match up to a lot of things that Jesus believes, which is why they're always hanging out with him. But philosophically, they're on the completely different ends of the spectrum as Jesus. Whereas Jesus talks about grace and mercy and love, they talk about rules and rules and more rules. Where Jesus talks about love for the lost and sinners and the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame, they talk about love for the people who keep the rules. And Jesus says, when you throw a feast or a party, don't invite people like you, your friends or family, your coworkers, your neighbors. But invite those who are unlike you in every way, the poor, crippled, lame, and blind. Last week, my wife and I threw a fifth birthday party for our youngest daughter. And we invited both sides of my family. Is Jesus telling me that I broke one of his commandments because I invited my family over for a party? No, he's not. Jesus himself went to weddings where his, fam- where his family was there, right? You think about John chapter 2, the wedding in Cana. Mary's the one who's like, hey, we ran out of wine. We're all cool with wine here. If this is a Baptist church, I would say grape juice. But we all ran out of wine. Could you, Jesus, do something about that and get us more wine? So Jesus obviously goes to parties and weddings and feasts and banquets where his family's there. But Jesus is saying this, and this is how it's supposed to be set up in the, in the original language. If you throw parties where your friends are the guests, you should also throw parties where your friends aren't the guests. If you throw parties for people who are like you, you should also throw parties for people who aren't like you in every way, poor, crippled, blind, and lame. And Jesus says when you do this, when you invite your friends, that's your reward. Oh, man, thanks so much for inviting me to your house. This is really awesome. Wow, don't you have like Joanna Gaines down, right? All this stuff at Target is in your house. Wow, what a great house you have. Jesus says, that's your reward. And then when they invite you to their kid's birthday party, that was your reward. But Jesus says, when you invite these people, the people are unlike you in every way that can't repay you. Jesus says, God will repay you. God will reward you where he, when he raises the dead and vindicates his people and brings about his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And Jesus is saying, isn't this a better reward? As the war in Ukraine continues to unfold, millions of Ukrainians, refugees are running to other countries and other countries are welcoming them in. But there is one story that really stood out to me There's multiple stories, but one really stood out to me from Germany, where one woman stood at the railway platform, held up a cardboard sign offering an empty room at her house 
to any woman and her children who needs it. Like, wow. Like, talk about inviting people who aren't your friends into your home. But can I tell you something when I read that? I don't think I would do that. Like, I don't think I would have done what that woman did. Like, if my friend or a family member needed a place to stay or they needed a bed, and if I had a room and it wasn't too inconvenient, maybe I would offer to let them stay at my home. But for some random person I don't know and their kids, their disgusting, dirty, cranky kids, I'm not saying that their kids are that way. I'm saying that's how I would think about it. Nah. So Jesus' challenge here is counterintuitive because I know that I don't want to do that, so my guess is you probably wouldn't want to do it either. And Jesus says, do it anyway. See, Jesus doesn't just challenge what I believe about the lost, but also challenges my actions and my attitude towards them as well. Like, we can all believe that we should reach out to the lost. That's great. Then he says, let me challenge your actions. Are you inviting the lost? Are you showing God's love to the lost? And then he says, not only that, I also challenge your attitude behind it. See, Jesus doesn't want us to just believe that it's a good idea to let the lost know about God's love. Jesus isn't just saying, I want you to invite the lost into God's kingdom. Jesus is saying, I want you to want to invite people into God's kingdom. You see the difference? Not just do it, I want you to want to do it. Like it's one thing to buy your wife flowers because you think you have to. It's another thing to buy her flowers because you want to buy her flowers, because you love her. And Jesus is saying, if you love God. It's one thing to do what he asks you to do. It's another thing deep in your heart to do it because you want to do it, because your affections and your attitudes have been changed by his love. And so Jesus continues, and he starts to tell this parable, and there's this invitation into God's kingdom, and Jesus talks about how it requires commitment. So picking up in verse 15, so Jesus just told this awkward scenario, awkward command to these people. When one of those who reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. This poor guy. Shouting out the first thing that comes to his head. Bad idea with Jesus, always. Peter will tell you that for sure. Bad idea. But Jesus hears the awkwardness of this guy and he responds with a story. A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who are invited, Come for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field, and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen. Anybody been there? And I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have, a married, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. <laughs> all right, you, you catch the humor Jesus is bringing out here. Blame the wife. Good call. 
So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you have commanded has been done and there still is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of these men who, who were invited shall taste my banquet. Now great crowds accompanied him. Excuse me, I went too far. That's it. <laughs> For I tell you, none of these men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Jesus is saying it's not enough to be invited into what God is doing. It's not enough to be invited to the party. It's not enough to be invited into his kingdom. You got to join in. You got to come. And you got to be involved and you got to be a part of it. See, in this parable, it said God is the master and he's inviting people into his kingdom through his servant Jesus. So, Jesus, when he began his ministry, he walks around in Matthew 3 2, he says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven, for the kingdom of God is at hand. See, the Jews up to this point were waiting for this to happen, they were waiting for God's kingdom to come. The Romans were in charge. Things were not going so hot. And they're waiting for God's kingdom to come. And so then all of a sudden this healing prophet starts walking around. He says, repent for the kingdom of heaven. Kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus starts walking around and says, he's saying, I'm beginning to bring about God's kingdom. Turn from all the other ways that you're trying to bring it about with your rules or rebellion or revolution and join my way of bringing about God's kingdom. The party's set, the drinks are out, the food's ready. We're ready to go. But because the way Jesus brought about God's kingdom looked differently than they thought it would or should, many Jews, the original invitees, many, not all, rejected it. On our most recent vacation, my wife and I had to take a bus from our hotel to the airport. And you can book the bus and you know, in advance, and you pay like 16 bucks a person, which is like, it's not a lot of money, but it's not SEPTA, you know what I mean? Like, so I was like, all right, 32 bucks, like, I got to make sure we're there on time. Like, so we, we got there about five minutes early from the pickup time that they told us to be there. And we got there because we didn't want to miss the bus, right? Like, you don't want to miss the bus, which means you then you might miss your plane, and then you miss your plane, and then everybody's mad at you, or the grandparents are mad at you because the kids are now with them another day. Let me, just in case you're listening, my in-laws are great. <laughs> but then the bus got there, so we, we jumped on board, but there was another family who made a reservation that was missing. So the driver called out, and there was no response. So we got out of the bus, called out again, no response. Went into the hotel, called out again, no response. So what did the bus driver do? He left. See, it's not enough to have a reservation. It's not enough to even show up. You got to jump on board the bus when it gets there. Otherwise, the reservation... It's pointless. See, the party's set, it's ready to go, but many had excuses for why they couldn't join in with what Jesus is doing. But the one thing you might need to know about God, 
God doesn't waste the good party. He moves on. So he invites the poor, crippled, blind, and lame. But then even after that, there's still seats available. So he invites those in the highways and hedges, which are the Gentiles, to join him, the non-Jews to join him too. So does this mean that God has completely abandoned the Jews? Absolutely not. Like Romans makes a large argument, Paul makes a large argument in Romans that God has not completely abandoned the Jews. But he does mourn that many of them have missed the party. And it's a good party. It's a great banquet, Jesus says. For one, the party host is God. Right? Like, if there's any reason to go to a party, God's there. That's a really great idea. We should go. He'll be there. And when you get invited to God's party and you're there and you jump in and you start enjoying the party, we feast on his goodness. And the party favors are things like the fruit of the Spirit. Spiritual blessings in heavenly places, Paul says in Ephesians 1. The Bible tells us that when you join into God's kingdom, when you're part of his people, you get access to God through the Holy Spirit. You get forgiveness of sin, freedom from guilt and shame, and all this is available to the party attenders, anyone who puts their faith in Jesus and follows him. And if you're here today and you've never accepted God's invitation to his kingdom, you never put your faith in Jesus, I invite you to do that today. Because honestly, who knows how many party invitations you're going to get after this. It's just the reality of things. If the last few years have taught us anything is that life is fragile. I don't know how many invitations you're going to get. But Jesus tells this parable as a warning. Not for you. Although there is part of that. The main driving factor behind this warning, the main audience he wants to hear this warning are those who have already accepted the invitation. Did you catch that? The people have already accepted the invitation from the master, but when the party's ready to go, they say, I'm good. Jesus' warning for, is to those of us who have excuses for why we won't do everything he asks of us. See, in this parable, the excuses the host's friends give are all legitimate excuses. The first guy has property. He has a house. He has real estate expenses and excuses. The next guy has financial excuses. And the last guy blames his wife. Which I always picture like him then having to turn around and go back in the house. <laughs> Why aren't we going to the party? Oh, because I thought we would just like hang out together tonight, so I blamed you. I don't know how your marriages work, but that mine wouldn't really fly. That wouldn't really fly in mine. But as Jesus is telling this parable, the original hearers would have heard those excuses. And they would have found them laughable too. See, they're legitimate excuses on a day-to-day -day level, right? Like, yes, it's a good idea to spend time with your wife. That's actually a good idea. You should do that. We promote that here but they're illegitimate excuses when they're compared to attending a great party. All excuses, all of our excuses, our homes, 
our finances or our families are legitimate on the day-to-day level, but they're illegitimate when it comes to following and obeying Jesus. And oftentimes God goes, hey, you say we're friends, but when I invite you to follow Jesus and obey him, by doing the work of the kingdom, all you're giving me is excuses. So James chapter 2 says this, and I think this is a, something for us all to hear. Those who, follow, who believe in Jesus, he says, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. And there's this great quote by Thomas Cramner that I read that like, has haunted me ever since I read this quote. And I put up on the screen, I don't put every quote on the screen, but this one really just haunted me. He says, tremble that there is more orthodox theology in hell than in many palaces, pulpits, and pews. And yet it does the demonic minions of Satan no spiritual good at all. There's more orthodox theology in hell. Like the demons believe all the right stuff, but it does them no good at all. You can say you believe in Jesus. I can say I believe in Jesus, but when it comes time for me to show it through my actions and my attitudes, what we do is we look for excuses to get out of it. And then we manipulate the commands of God so they don't actually really apply to us, or we manipulate them so they actually do apply to us, but in this weird paraphrase manipulation way of going about it. We say all the right things. We know all the right stuff. And that's a good start. Absolutely, it's a good start. But even the demons know all the right stuff. Even the demons can say all the right things. But what good does it do for them? Because when it comes time to show my belief, when it comes time for you to show your belief, our attitude is off because our hearts are elsewhere. And our belief has little effect on our actions. So what we say, know, and think have done us no good at all. We make excuses because we're distracted. Jesus in Matthew 5 says, If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. Jesus is saying, you can have one eye on God, but your sights can be set elsewhere. He says it's better to take that one eye out than to have your whole body thrown into hell. Is there something inherently wrong with an eye? No, eyes are good. We promote having two eyes around here. But Jesus is saying, if you can have your eye on God and your sight set elsewhere. If you want God and something else, you'll always get the something else. What God wants doesn't mix well with what you want. God refuses to share the podium with someone else or something else in your life. God will not share the spotlight with your idols. 
See, many of us think we can have both. We can have our idols and God. But God's like, if you do that, you'll be so distracted that you'll lose me too. You can't stay home and enjoy the party at the same time. So as the original invitees found out, if you want God and your property, if you want God and your house, you'll get your house. If you want God and your finances, you'll get your finances. If you want God and your spouse, you'll get your spouse. But Jesus does tell us, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Jesus is saying, put God and his kingdom first and your house second, and guess what? Then you'll get God and your house. Because by putting God first, you'll become content with the house you have and not dedicate your life to the house you don't have yet. He's saying, put God and his kingdom first and your finances second, and you'll get God and your finances. If you try to put them both in first place, you will get your finances. But if you put them in the right order, in the right priority, God first, then finances, you'll learn to live generously now rather than wait for then, whenever then is. Put God first and your spouse second, and you'll get God and your spouse. Because husbands will learn to take the lead and they'll serve their wives. Like, husbands, if you woke up every day and you put God first and you said, how can I show the love of God to my wife today? Your marriage would instantly change. If you said, how can I serve my wife today the way that Jesus serves me? Your life would instantly change. And wives will learn to cheer their husbands on and serve them in return. And your marriage will be more harmonious. But when we're distracted by other things, we're saying, God, your party isn't enough. And by saying that, what we're really saying, the party host is not enough. We're saying, I'm not the problem, God. My distractions aren't the problem, God. My idols aren't the problem, God. You're the problem, God. Like, at what point do we stop seeing God and what he wants as the problem and start seeing ourselves and what we want as the problem? At what point are we going to do that? See, when do we stop seeing the inconvenience of God's kingdom the inconvenience of following Jesus as something to avoid and start instead seeing it as something that's fulfilling, that's something I wouldn't dare miss, that's going to give me life and life abundantly, that's going to shape me into the image of Jesus, that I'm going to have love for my neighbors and my friends and love for my spouse and love for my neighborhood. At what point do we see the inconvenience as not something to avoid but something that actually will change us and give us a fulfilling, worthwhile life? Like, of course dieting is inconvenient. Of course it is. If it wasn't, everybody would do it. Of course working out is inconvenient. Of course dating your wife is inconvenient. Of course child rearing is inconvenient. But I can't think of one thing that is fulfilling that isn't inconvenient. You know it. I know it too. 
So of course being sacrificially generous is inconvenient. Of course it is. Duh. So Yeah, like, you're not going to have as many trips to Starbucks. Okay. You're not going to be able to put the new whatever in the whatever part of your house. Okay. No one said it was going to be convenient. So yeah, you're not going to have the Johanna Gaines thing. So what? Like, how many people got in the kingdom of God because they, their house looked like Johanna Gaines? Zero. Of course serving on Sundays will stretch you. Of course you'll have to wake up early and get here. Oh, man, crazy thought. Yeah. Of course attending home meetings is going to take one of your evenings away. Of course it is. Of course it may not check every box for you. Of course that, there's going to be one person there who annoys you. Okay. But doesn't mean it's not going to shape you. Doesn't mean it's not going to be something that's fulfilling. Of course, inviting a friend to church on Easter Sunday is going to be slightly awkward. It always is. But it's always slightly awkward. It's never as awkward as we think it's going to be. Ecclesiastes 11.4 is one of my favorite verses. says this. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. To paraphrase, if you wait for perfect conditions, you'll never get anything done. If you're waiting for God, if I'm waiting for God to be convenient, I'll be waiting forever. And the party will go on without me. See, committing to God's kingdom and his way of life in Jesus is inconvenient, but it's so much better, and God wants you to experience it. He wants you to leave your excuses and distractions behind for a better, more fulfilling, worthwhile life by joining in with his son who came to seek and save the lost. God wants that for you. I want that for you. I want you to want it for you. See, one of the great conundrums of throwing a wedding reception is that it takes months and years to prepare but hours for it to be over, right? It's like three hours, the whole thing's done. Unless you're like a, like the family and filler on the roof, I guess. But there's so much work that goes in behind the scenes to make it happen. You find a hall that, spoiler alert, grooms that the bride likes. You decide between a band or a DJ that the bride likes, but which one are you going to go band or DJ, and then which band or DJ are you going to go with? You try food from multiple caterers, which is like the favorite part of the, of the process for the grooms, and cake from multiple bakeries, and then like let's not even get, begin to get into the politics of seating charts. How long those take? Well, we can't have Aunt Sally sit by the, the door to the kitchen because we don't want a civil war on our hands. Well, we know so-and-so can't sit next to so-and-so. Yeah, okay. So much work. So much work. But if everyone appreciated the work that the hosts put into it, I don't think you would get any declines. If you actually appreciated all the work that went into planning a wedding, I'm not sure how many people would actually decline. And let me ask you, have we come to terms with how much work God put in to make this party happen.
Have we come to terms with what had to be done for him to open up his kingdom to us? For us to get the invitation in the first place. Because I think if we did, I don't think you would miss the opportunity to jump on board. That the servant Jesus, God the Son, left the master's home in heaven, inconvenienced himself to come to earth, to take on human flesh as Jesus, and to shed his blood on the cross. Talk about inconvenient. But he did that to wash away our sin and shame for all of us who put our faith and trust in him. And then he rose from the dead so that all of us who put our faith in him, not just people who are part of the original invitees, but also the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, but also those like you and me in the highways and hedges were all invited to partake in God's party and to join in as we follow him. See, God the Son gave his life to throw this party. He was so committed to you that he did the counterintuitive thing by inconveniencing himself to save you and me, who all we do oftentimes is give him excuses. But he invites us again today through his word to join in. Don't miss the party. And if you came to grasp, if I came to grasp the fact that we were lost and that Jesus gave his life so we could come into God's kingdom, we want to make sure that others don't miss the party either. Like we actually truly believe that it actually was deep in our hearts and didn't just affect our, what we believe and our actions, but also our attitudes. We wouldn't want anybody else to miss this. See, commitment to God and his kingdom, despite the inconvenience we might feel, will become the only appropriate response. And all our distractions and all of our excuses will be laughable too compared to the fulfilling life that Jesus invites us into. But Jesus invites us, and this invitation to God's kingdom requires that we pay it forward. If you notice, early on in the, in the story here, in the, in the passage we read, Jesus says, but when you give a feast. Because Jesus, the servant, laid his life down for the party guests, we respond to the kindness and love of the party host, and we become party hosts ourselves. And we pay the invitation forward. And the one thing we do is we send out invitations to God's party. We share our faith. We ask people to come into God's family. And then we invite them to church. We start handing out our invite cards. And we invite our neighbors and we invite indiscriminately. Like we invite the people we, you don't think will come. Invite those people. The mailman, the waiter at the restaurant after church, a coworker who's been struggling, a friend who can't catch a break, your neighbor who annoys you. Or just some random guy at Wawa for no reason. Hey man, I just want to invite you to my church. You don't know me, I don't know you, but I'd love to see you there. So not only do we send out the invitations, but because we're party hosts, we're good party hosts. See, the party happens wherever the party host is. 
So if the party hosts God, wherever you go, if the Holy Spirit's living inside of you, everywhere you go, the party happens. At T-ball, at work, at eating out, at the grocery store in your neighborhood. And in the context of our church, you attend the party you're hosting. No party host is missing from the party that they're hosting. They're always there. You might not be able to find them, but they're there. Can you imagine like inviting someone to the party here at Liberty and when they show up, they can never find you? You're not there? And so we, then when we're here, we keep our eyes open for guests to arrive. And as party hosts, you always step out of the fun. Because it's, it's not about you having a good time. It's about everyone else feeling comfortable and welcome. And it's your job to make sure it's not your job to make sure people come. It's just your job to be a good party host. You can give somebody a card. You can invite them, make phone calls, shoot them a text. It's not your job to get them here. That's the Holy Spirit's job. It's just your job is when they get here that you're a good host. And you're welcoming. You get to know visitors and newcomers. And you invite them into the life here. But God invites all to come into his kingdom through Jesus. And I beg of you, don't allow the things in this life to distract you from his kingdom. I beg of you, don't miss the party. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. And before I pray, if you're here today and you never have put your faith and trust in Jesus and you've never accepted that invitation, why don't you just take a moment to do that now? And then just say, Jesus, I'm in. Forgive me, and I'm in. And for the rest of us, those who have put our faith and trust in Jesus already, Father, we lift ourselves up to you. And we ask that you would help us be great party hosts because you were a great party host who sent his servant, Jesus, to rescue us. And may we be committed to that invitation, to that party, to your kingdom. And may we pay, pay it forward by inviting others into it too. And we pray all this in Christ's name, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, now and forever.